We're in the book of Revelation. Take your Revelation chapter 3, would you? Talking a little bit about challenging our hearts personally. And uh, the Lord gave the book of the Revelations, the last book of her Bible. John is uh, maybe a teenager whenever he was chosen to be a, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. The youngest, he outlived uh, Paul by over 30 years. So this is way in the 90s whenever he was uh, given this. He's the only and the last disciple left at this time of history. The only one that did not die as a martyr. Uh, of course, uh, Judas killed himself. The rest of them... Uh, they were tortured and, and uh, martyred. Uh, though John lived a very difficult life, and at the end of his life was, uh, was sent to, uh, to be boiled in oil and tortured and put on the exiled on the island of Patmos. But there he met with Jesus there, and Jesus gave him the book of the Revelation. Don't let the book of the Revelation scare you. It, matter of fact, there's a blessing to those who read the book of the Revelation. Don't skip over it. Don't get nervous about it. Uh, the book of the Revelation, primarily, it tells the things that were, that's Jesus. It tells the things that uh, not only were, but the things that are, that's the seven churches, and the things that shall be hereafter. And so when you look at the, uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 1 talks about the person of Jesus Christ. It tells he's the Alpha, he's the Omega, he's the true witness. And then it talks about the power of Jesus Christ what he can do and what he does and what he has the ability to do. And then it lays out the plan of Jesus Christ for the ages. And uh, you see the pre-rapture, chapters 1, 2, and 3. Chapters 4, verse 1, you will find the tribulation period, the hour of tribulation, uh, Jacob's trouble, if you will. And then chapters 19 through 22, you'll find things that will come after that. Some people think about the tribulation period. There's several things that you will come to your mind when you think about those seven years. Number one, the anger of God. He is going to pour out his anger upon this planet and anyone who rejects him. And even this, they'll cry that the stones will fall on them. And it, so you can see, if you, if you read, and sometimes that's why people get a little nervous about reading chapters 4 through 19 of Revelation. But if you're a child of God... You are not subject to that wrath. We'll study that a little bit tonight, and that's a blessing. But we will see the anger of God. You also see the absence of the church. The church is not there. And uh, the church is mentioned a lot in chapters 1, 2, and 3. It's not mentioned after it's caught up out of this, out of this world, the rapture of the church. The absence of the church is there. The Antichrist as he is the ruler, you'll see that in the tribulation period. You'll see the abomination of desolation that takes place in the middle of the tribulation period that will be there. You'll see the, uh, the absolute destruction of the world, the battle of Armageddon, and uh, will take place during that time. You also will find the awakening of the Jews. I believe with all my heart that uh, the tribulation period... Uh, there are people that are saved there, but many of them are going to be of Jewish descent. And I believe it's an opportunity for God to once again woo His people back to Himself through His Son. And uh, he will, that's why the two prophets, who are Jewish prophets, that's why the 144 uh, virgin uh, evangelists all over the world for Jewish descent to reach primarily the Jews. You'll see the awakening of the Jews and uh, then you will see the uh, Armageddon. The Battle of Armageddon will complete that. But we're talking about what is happening now. And he introduces us to seven cities that have churches in those cities. Beginning with the church 
at uh, Ephesus. Now, you can look at them chronologically, and there are many smarter people than myself who have looked at it and said, you know what, I think uh, Ephesus represents the early stages of Christianity, and then uh, Smyrna's the Dark Ages, and then we have this. And I don't think it's wrong. I just don't think it's the best application, quite frankly, of these, these uh, churches. I think they're very practical applications to churches and to people today. I don't think it's just given to us as a history lesson so that we can look back and say, oh, that's what happened back then. I think it's something we can see what's happening because he says when you write this in chapter 1 of Revelation, he said, John, when you write this, write the things which were. That's Jesus. Write the things which are. That's the church age. Write the things that shall be hereafter. And chapter 4, verse 1 on is all futuristic in the book of the Revelation. But he does go through these uh, seven churches. We're in church number six this evening. We're going to be talking a little bit about the church of Philadelphia. Of the seven churches that God mentions, uh, all of them, he gives commendations. He does say some things good about them. But five of them, he gives severe rebuke and gives them time. He uses the word repent. And repent, if you ever ask to repent, that means you got some time to make a difference. You got some time to, to adjust your thinking and your direction. And he tells them to, to, to repent. He talks about the church at Ephesus. It was a loveless church. They were strong. They were fundamental. They were, they were, to, they were good at winning people to gospel with the gospel, but they were not loving. Love had gone out the door. They were doing things solely because of duty. And they had left their first love. And he tells them, remember, return, repent. Get back into it. The, the, the church at Smyrna. And by the way, these are all in Turkey. Modern day Turkey today, Asia Minor then. They were all churches. And the interesting thing too is that they're second generation churches. They had been in existence for about 30 years most likely. Paul, no doubt, had, had 30 years prior to this, had had strong um, emphasis. He may have been to every one of them, but whatever he was... He was instrumental in training the men who went there. For those three years that he was in Ephesus, he trained many servants of Christ, much like we're trying to do at the Hammond Bible Institute. By the way, what a great meeting last night. And if you have not uh, joined Hammond Bible Institute, and you should, and God's speaking to you about it, I'm sure if you're being prompted to do it, it's not the devil telling you to do it. So if it is that you need to do that, I want you to come. I think you'll find it to be a blessing. It's not too late. We had our first class. We actually have two more weeks that you could, you could jump in and you could do it for audit. Some folks take it for audit just to come to get the material. Other people can take it for credit and get the certificate. I want to encourage you to do that. But that's why we have a Hyman Bible Institute. That's why we have the Spanish Bible Institute. Well, we have Howells Anderson College. Before I showed up to Howells Anderson College, obviously, uh, it was because there need to be training. There needs to be schooling. There needs to be a development. And, and Apostle Paul did that in the school of Tyrannus, two years, night and day, training people for the work of the ministry. And from that, these churches were started, no doubt. John was, we believe, to be the pastor of the church at Ephesus for a while, but he definitely, I believe, had influence in each of these seven churches. There were many more churches in that area, Hierapolis, uh, Laodicea, right in the middle of that was, was uh, Colossae. And of course, the book of Colossians was written uh, to them. Paul wrote that to that church. But he definitely was the man God used, but they had now been in existence for 30 years. Second generation churches, and second generation churches have some challenges. Second generation Christians have some challenges. 
and it's grievous. I was talking to some folks recently, and, and they came out of a sinful lifestyle, and God saved them and recovered them, and now their kids have been raised in a second, as a second-generation Christian, and they find themselves going back into the lifestyle their parents got saved out of, and it's grievous. But second-generation Christians have some challenges, and every challenge these churches have, some, they just lose their love. They're still on the bus route. They still watch Sundays. They still do a Sunday school class. They still watch the nursery. They still clean the building. They still play the piano. They still do the choir, but they don't have love in the shine. And that's something, if you don't have that, that's nobody's fault but yours. If I don't have it, there's nobody's fault but mine. Well, my dad didn't get to, he wasn't raised in the home I was raised in. He didn't have the same opportunities I have. And boy, by the way, a local church like this one is infused and enjoyed, uh, enjoys welcoming new people who are first-generation Christians. They bring a lot of life into a church. They bring some huspah. They're the ones who are ready to do things. And it's sad when somebody who has been saved for a few months can get more excited about the work of God than someone saved 30 years. If you see someone encouraged in, the, in their first few weeks or months or years of their Christian life, don't throw cold water on them. Encourage them. And if you find yourself apathetic and a little bit struggling, get a, get a checkup from the neck up and get stirred up. Stir up the gift of God that he gave you. Decide, you know what, I know more than I've ever known for God. Now let me use that for the glory of God. All of us, all the way, all of us. Everybody serving God to the end. But these churches, some of them, they were loveless churches. Some of them, they were, they were lowly churches going through difficult seasons. That no, no, no admonition, no, no condemnation, no correction was given to the church of Smyrna. Just going through a hard time. And I'm convinced that right now there are Christians like that. You're not doing anything wrong but you are being stirred up by Satan and he is working on you and you're in that 10-day process of sickness. And he said, look, it's going to be about 10 days of this. It's not, you're not through it yet. Boy, when you get a real bad sickness and COVID or you got, you got some kind of flu, if you don't treat it it's going to, and you run its course, it's going to be about 10 days on the average. He said, that's kind of how some, some Christians are going through it. Right now in this room and worldwide, there are great churches, but they're under severe persecution. We heard Brother Mahaffey say just a few moments ago in the, in, the, in the area that he used to serve in, some of the churches are under heavy restrictions, heavy surveillance, heavy interviews and continuing the police are coming and taking Christians and, and interviewing them and aggravating them to try to get them to quit giving the gospel and quit meeting together. Well, that would be a, maybe a type of the church of Smyrna. The next church is the church of Pergamos, and it was a church that was loosey-goosey. A church that was just uh, accepting the world's methodology into itself. It was worldly. Yes, they had some good things about them, but they, they just let the world spot all over them. And he said, that's, that's not, I hate it. I hate the doctor of the Nicolaitans. I hate the infiltration that comes into the church. And oftentimes, second-generation Christians, we struggle with that. We struggle with that. We, we start blending back in, to letting the world blend back into, the, into our lives and into the church. And we see churches throughout Christendom like that. The church of Thyatira was, it was a, a lawless church. They had, they had uh, Jezebel. They per, per, permitted lady teachers. And she, like Jezebel, wasn't her name, but it was a type that God is using here that uh, challenged the people. It challenged them. It, it, caused, it caused a lot of problems to the 
to the spiritual leadership that was there, stirred up her husband, and introduced idolatry into the church. And certainly we know there are churches today that at one time were rock bed, but now they're eat up with idolatry. They're worshiping music rather than worshiping the God that gave them music. They're worshiping themselves. Hey, let's have a seeker-sensitive church, a church that appeals to people. Whatever kind of church you would like, let's have that. Listen, we don't need a seeker-sensitive church. We need a savior-sensitive church. He's the head of the church, and he ought to have his way in what happens in his church. He's the one who protects it. He's the one who designed it. He provides for it. Uh, he, it's, everything is about Jesus. And uh, this church was not that way. Then we talked about the church of Sardis. It was a lifeless church. It was a church that had a name and a sign and a people and a pastor, but there was just nothing there. It was dead. I think if you travel sometimes and you're on vacation, you stop in different churches. How many ever stopped at a church and you felt like, I think I just went to a dead church? I mean, I didn't feel anything there from God. I heard a man tell me he walked in, he was in a church and a guy just, it was, there was like nine people there and that wasn't a problem having a small church. God doesn't judge a church by its size, but by its Christ-likeness. But he said, you know what? No one said a word to me. My wife and my little kids sat down there in the service. It was almost time to start, and a guy walked in the back, didn't say a thing to anybody, walked on the pulpit and said, all right, open your Bibles. He read, the, he read the scripture, gave his message, walked out the back door. Yeah, have a good night. He said, man, I couldn't wait to get out of that place. Had a sign, had a pastor, had a people, had cars in the parking lot, but no life. He said, the church at Sardis, uh, watch out. You need to stay alive. And, you know, Jesus came that we might have life and life more abundantly. Boy, there never be, ought to be the case like that more so than in the local church. Tonight we're talking about the church at Philadelphia. And, of course, we have, a nation, we have our nation in Pennsylvania. There's a city called Philadelphia, the, brother of, uh, the, the city of brotherly love. I don't think it lives up to its name, but I'm not sure about that. But nonetheless, uh, this particular church is called the Church of Philadelphia. It looked like to me, from a little bit of a study on that city, it was a, a Greek city. They were trying to introduce Greeks especially. They weren't, never, they weren't terribly uh, inclusive of the barbarians. And when you see the word barbarian in the Bible, it means someone who wasn't a Greek speaker, not someone who is maybe a, a heathen or, a, or a, you know, someone who just uh, runs around with a caveman or something like that. It's somebody who did not speak uh, Greek. And they were really wanting to adapt. They, they were a city known by their pillars, uh, but it did have a couple earthquakes on AD 17. I guess an earthquake took place, and people, some people were a little nervous about even living there because of the earthquakes, but they would try to put pillars and, and, and stability to that town. Let's look at what the Bible says about the church of Philadelphia. It is a loyal church that we commend. Uh, we commend them, and God does the same thing. Revelation chapter 3, beginning verse number 7. And to the angel, that's the pastor, of the church in Philadelphia, write, These things saith he that is holy, that is true or genuine. He that hath the key of David, and of course that's a reference to Jesus Christ, Isaiah chapter 22, 22 and 23, you can, re you can cross-reference that, put that in margin in your Bible if you want. But there's no condemnation in this church, he said, but he that hath the key of David that openeth, uh, he openeth and no man shutteth, he shutteth and no man openeth. And so he just kind of introduces who Jesus is. Every time he approaches a church, he introduces himself in a different way. 
You might remember somewhere he's searching. He's the one who searched the church. He's the one who evaluates things. Uh, here he says, I am the one who is the, have the keys of David. I open and no one can close. I close and nobody can open. He has opportunities and opportunities are given to different people. And he says, this is who I am. And of course, he's a reference to Jesus Christ. Now look at verse number eight. I know thy works. I want you to notice that real quickly. Does it say, I know thy intentions? I know your feelings? No, he knows what you do. He knows our works. Over and over again, the Bible, you'll see this. And when he approaches, he says, I know what you've done. And by the way, what you've done is very important. What you do is very important. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 10, we'll all give an account of our works. Revelation chapter 22, verse number 12, he said, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give to every man according to their works. Uh, the book of Ephesians chapter 2, I love this verse. You should love it too. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. Eternal life is dependent completely upon Jesus Christ. Uh, it's your faith in Jesus that determines your eternal destiny. It's not anything you can do. No works can we do. The secret of eternal life is to learn that it cannot be earned. But verse number 10 is a very important concept. It says, after we're saved, we are his what? Workmanship. Okay, after we're saved, God wants us to work. He said, matter of fact, you are working with me. We're laborers together with God. Now you're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. If any man be in Christ, he is a new what? Creature. Created in Christ unto good works, which God before ordained that we could walk in them. You know, it, just keep in mind, salvation is by faith in the work of Jesus, plus nothing, minus nothing. Eternal reward is on the, on, on the, the, the love and the works that we do. And, you know, God is always watching. Every time he says to a church, I know your works. I know what you're do. I know what you've done. Whether it be good or whether it be evil, I know. And he does know. And, boy, don't ever fool yourself in thinking that God doesn't know what's going on. He knows what's going on in your head. He knows what's going on in your iPhone, your iPad, your Android. He knows what's going on. There's, you don't have a secret password that he doesn't know. He knows everything. And uh, you can hide things from other people, but you cannot hide anything from the Lord. He knows, and he makes sure that every church hears them. And by the way, if it's every church needs to hear it, every Christian needs to hear it. Just like these seven churches have some characteristics, I believe that this, these characteristics are in every, in every church where there's enough, at least seven people there. <laughs> You'll find that there are, there are characteristics in there. You'll have some people that are just, they're strict as all get out, but they don't have love. There's people that are loyal, going through difficult times. God knows them, and he's using them. He's going to help them. You've got people that are loosey-goosey. They used to be conservative, holy Christians. Now holiness is no longer in their vocabulary. They have no interest in holiness. They're all worldly eat up. They're eat up with the world. Everything is worldly talk. Everything is worldly activities, worldly appetites. Everything's worldly. Other folks have gone into fornication like the church of Thyatira. Other folks have a name that they're alive, but they're really dead. They're just a bunch of dead heads, and they need to repent and get back to getting stirred up. This church is a loyal church. 
And God says, I know you. I know what's going on. I know what you've done. Look at the next thing he tells them. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. Of course, uh, catapulting on the fact that he has the keys of David, he opens and closes. I think this speaks of a church, and I don't think it's the strongest church. I doubt if it's the largest church of the seven. But he says, you know, I've given you a, an unusual opportunity to reach, to open doors. I think the Apostle Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse number 9. He said, there is an effectual and open door unto me, but there are many, what? Adversaries. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, he said, man, pray. Pray that I'll have boldness to speak as I ought to speak, and that God will open doors of utterance. In Colossians chapter 4. And this church, he said, you know, I've given you, even, I know your works, and I've given you an open door, an opportunity. How many times I've missed. I really think you can see the success or failure of Apostle Paul largely upon his, his sensitivity to walk through open doors. There are several times he knocked on the door and didn't open. He didn't push it down. He said, okay, where do you want me to go? Do you want me to go to Asia? How about over here in Bithynia? No, I don't want you to go there. Where do you want me to go? So he goes up here to Troas, and there God gives him a, a, a sign from a guy who says, come over and help us. And he, he opens, he goes to the doors. He asks God for open doors. You and I ought to ask the Lord for open doors. He tells this church, he goes, look, I know your works, and I've given you an open door. I've un unlocked the door for you, an opportunity. And some of you have open doors in your workplace, in your neighborhood. You have open doors of your season that you can do some things now that you could not have done. There's some of us we can give to this project. Uh, we can help a missionary. This time we couldn't do that. Some of us, we could travel to, to foreign lands. In our early years of raising kids, that wasn't even a possibility. We couldn't hardly travel across the parking lot. But now we can do some things. There's opportunities we have that we can do. He said, I've given you an open door to get the gospel out. Look, if you would please, the next thing the verse says in verse number 8. No man can shut this. This is something I've already worked out. For thou hast how much strength? So you're not real strong. That's okay. By the way, uh, all the strength is not in me, and it's certainly not in you. It's not in an organization. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he's the one. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And I can do all things through Christ, which everything has to be going back to him. He said, look, you've got a little strength. That's fine. But thou hast kept my words. You've done it. You have obeyed the Bible. And has not denied my name. You've kept my name uh, in, in a paramount place. Verse number nine. Behold, I will make of them a synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Here's a couple of thoughts. And I don't exactly understand this verse completely. But here's what I do understand. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29 uh, the Apostle Paul said, there are some people who say they're God's people, but they're really not God's people. Matter of fact, he says something very strong here. He said, they're in a synagogue thinking they're worshiping Jehovah, but who is in who's in charge of that synagogue according to that verse right there? Satan. I, I'm convinced in my, in my estimation that there are many people who think they are, they're, uh, they're spiritual and they're worshiping the Lord, but actually they're tools in Satan's hand. I never want to be that way. I want to make sure I'm, I'm right, but I think you have to understand that God tells us, try the spirits and see if they really be of God. And I think pride hides and knowledge puffs up, and, and there are definitely some subliminal things taking place in every age of mankind. 
And our age is no, no exception to that. But he said, there are some people who are the synagogue of Satan. I know who they are, and I'm going to cause them one day to bow down at your feet. Now, I don't know whether he means, and it could mean this, that they, God will save some people that are aggravating the work of God, just like Saul was aggravating the church of God, and God used him. God, God changed him. God arrested him. He was no match for Jesus when he hit him on the road to Damascus. And he brought him to, to kneel at the feet of people that he had persecuted and had a hard time with. At the same time, it may be just divine retribution. God is taking the wicked and the evil, satanic influence of the world that one day, he says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. At the end, we know the Bible says God wins, right? <laughs> We've read the last chapter. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And he's telling them, look, whatever's going on in your life right now, he said, um, I got this. No matter how wicked it may be and how much opposition you may be receiving, Church of Philadelphia, I, uh, one day, either some of those people are going to bow and, 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 and uh, say, you're right, I'm wrong. By the way, sometimes when you find someone who is a real hard head, think about Carl Hatch. How many ever heard Carl Hatch? I remember saw him break a pulpit or something like that. I'm just joking. I, I know he used to excited about breaking pulpits when he was younger. But he was a hard charger. He was a great soul winner. But before he got saved, he was an ornery cuss. He was terrible. And he, would, uh, he, he had a neighbor that kept inviting him to come to consider Jesus, to come to church. He would cuss him. He would get mad at him and throw him off his property. And uh, he was just awful. He, and, and Brother Carl Hatch says, that neighbor just kept coming back with love. He goes, I'd give him the hardest time. Don't talk to me about your blankety-blank church, your blankety-blank track, keep your papers, whatever. Every time you, he just kept coming back with a smile and the love of Christ. He, I couldn't, couldn't take it. And the Bible says, and of some have compassion, making a difference. And others are saved with fear. Most people get saved one of two ways, because they feel the compassionate love of God or they feel the fear of God. And they're like, you know, I, I want to get saved because I don't really want to go to hell and I feel like hell's become real. And other people, they get saved because of the love and compassion of God and the extension of God in you and me. But uh, he says, I, I'll take care of this, this synagogue. They say they're your Christians, but they're not really Christians. They say they're God's people, but they're not really Jews. If you want to put a verse out beside there, that is that, that uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. Look at verse 11, if you would, please. And notice there at the end of verse 9, to know that I have what? Now, just real quickly, sometimes one of Satan's greatest lies, now he uses fear, he uses doubt, and he uses lies as footholds to cripple Christians. He does it to me, he does it to you. But one of the things that he wants the church to know is that I have loved one of the greatest things you need to know in your heart and life. Matter of fact, Apostle Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 3. When he prayed for the church, he said, Lord, I want you. Here's, to why I, here's what I pray when I bow my knees to the God in heaven, who owns the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Here's what I pray. I pray you'll be strengthened with God's might in the inner man by his spirit. Number two, I pray that Christ would dwell in their hearts by faith. Number three, I pray that they would be rooted and grounded in love. Number four, I pray that they would know the breadth, the height, the length, the depth of the love of Christ. 
Apostle Paul said this in, in Galatians 2, verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me. Jeremiah 31, verse 3, the Bible says, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, and with loving kindness have I drawn thee. I'm convinced no one will serve God faithfully for a lifetime until they're totally convinced that God loves them. And this church needed to be reminded, even though you're being persecuted by the synagogue of Satan, I got, I'm doing something on the other side of the line, but I want you, them to know, and I want you to know that I have loved thee. That's a beautiful thought right there. Let's look at the next verse, verse number 10. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, because you have kept my word through trials, you kept going through difficulties. And by the way, there's so many billboards in the Bible that tell us to keep going. Let us not be weary in, well, do in due season we'll reap if we faint not. Be steadfast, unmovable. God wants you to keep going. And you cannot quit something God wants you to do and not have regret. He wants us to keep going. He said, because you have kept my word in patience. When you see the word patience, that doesn't mean just like waiting. Patience means strength to continue. Uh, James chapter 1, when it says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptation. Knowing this is a trying of your faith worketh patience. And let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire. Patience is handling problems with praise and prayer and perseverance so that you can handle another problem with praise and prayer and perseverance. It's just the way it is. In this, in this world, it's a battlefield, brother, not a recreation room. It's a fight. It's not a game. You say, boy, I tell you what, I'm glad I'm out of my 40s. I don't have any more problems. Oh, boy. Oh, my kids are all grown up. No more problems. Oh, boy. Problems don't go away. God gives you praise, prayer, and wisdom, and then perseverance so you can have more patience to face more prayer with praise, prayer, and perseverance, more problems. It's how, it's how God works in this fallen, wicked world that we live in. But he commends him. He says, you guys have kept my word with patience. Look at verse number 10 again, if you would, please. And verse number 10, and we'll keep, I'll keep you from the hour of, I'd like for you to underline that. I think this is a proof text for the pre-tribulation rapture. We've got folks nowadays that uh, it's kind of come back in a wave where they're saying, well, God's going to come back and we're going to go through part of the tribulation or we'll go through all the tribulation or that kind of a thing. I do believe the Bible teaches in a pre-tribulation rapture. Jesus comes, then there's a tribulation period, then there's a battle of Armageddon, then there's a millennial reign. And I know there's some slicky, ricky folks that know how to com communicate that a little difference. But this right here, he says, you're my people. I love you, and I'm going to keep you from the hour of, of, of temptation. I think that is a proof text of that. Which shall come, where is it going to come? Upon how much of the world? And where do you know where the tribulation is going to come on all the world for sure? Tribulation, period. And, uh, we'll, and, uh, and try them that dwell upon the earth. Then it says, behold, I come quickly. I think the quickly means he's going to be, it's going to be a sudden appearance. And the Bible tells it, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to come 
right like next minute, but when it comes, it'll be go so fast, you won't know what happened. Your head will spin, a twinkling of an eye, I think the Bible mentions it. He said, Behold, I come quickly. When I come, I'm coming quickly. So hold fast that which thou hast, and that no man take thy crown. I don't exactly understand that completely altogether. I've read several different thoughts on it, but the truth of the matter is, I think uh, what you need to understand is you're not in a race with somebody else, no one else in a race with you. You're in a race to do what God wants you to do. But it's important that you finish well. Apostle Paul said, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown. And I don't know exactly how God does that in his economy, but I challenge you, Christian, if you're floundering, get back on track. Today's the first day of the rest of your life. Finish strong. So I haven't been a soul winner my whole life. Start today. My prayer life stinks. Improve it. I'm not very good at giving. Get better at it. Let's finish strong. He said, don't, don't, don't peter out at the end of this situation. Finish strong. Don't let anything keep you from the crown. I think some of us think, well, we're just saved. I just want to go to heaven. I don't care what my house looks like. I don't care what that. I don't think you understand God. God said, I want you to finish strong. Don't let anything keep you from your reward that God wants to give you. It, it grieves me sometimes every once in a while whenever we have something to give somebody and they're not there to receive it. Or they disqualified themselves from getting it. Well, we had the number one here, but we just found out they were taking drugs. We had a great, this person get number one, he hit the most home runs, but there were steroids involved. But the truth of the matter is, in the Christian life, you want to make sure that you don't let anything keep you. And you, know, you don't have to be afraid about that, but it ought to be a motivation in you. Say, God, help me to finish strong. The last thing the Bible tells us in verse number, th verse number 12 him that overcometh, and you can put a little note out there, 1 John 5, 4, he that overcometh is anyone who is saved. He, he who is saved is overcometh. He will make a pillar in the temple of my God. I'll, I'll bring stability to him, and he shall go more, no more out. He'll be there, right there with God, and will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which come down from out of heaven from my God, and I will write unto him, uh, my new name. Would you read verse 13 with me, everybody? He that hath an ear. Well, there's a lot of things for us to learn from that. Let's pray together. Can we please? Do